Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from local municipal concerns to state and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Joe Moravchek. And I am Nate Leaf. Today on Public Policy This Week, we are going to discuss shipping on the Great Lakes, an industry important to Minnesota's economy and important to the United States' economy and security. Tens of millions of tons of cargo are shipped across the Great Lakes annually, directly affecting eight U.S. states and two provinces in neighboring Canada. Thousands of American and Canadian jobs rely on Great Lakes shipping, agriculture, mining, manufacturing, and energy. Joining us this morning is guest Eric Peace, Vice President of the Lake Carriers Association, to discuss all things related to the importance of shipping on the Great Lakes. Mr. Eric Peace joined the Lake Carriers Association as the Director of Operations and Communications in 2019 after retiring as a commander with more than 20 years in the Coast Guard. While in service, he drove Coast Guard operations, specifically icebreaking. He served in command positions on three Great Lakes icebreakers, including the U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Mackinac, home ported in Sheboygan, Michigan. His final assignment in uniform was as the program manager for all ice operations at Coast Guard headquarters in Washington, D.C., While in this position, he published numerous policy papers and strategic documents advocating for new polar icebreaking procurement and synergy in Coast Guard workforce experience between Great Lakes icebreaking sailors and those needed in the future on the new polar icebreakers. Mr. Peace earned a Master of Strategic Intelligence from the National Intelligence University after completing a thesis on U.S. and Canadian icebreaking and he received a Bachelor of Science in Government from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. Mr. Eric Peace, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Good morning, and thank you for having me. And let me just say one thing, that uh, happy birthday, Minnesota. So I just saw a tweet from uh, Congressman Stauber saying you're 165 years old. Statehood Day. Statehood Day. Uh, Eric's joining us via Zoom. Where are you located today? We're in Westlake, Ohio, which is just to the west of Cleveland, Ohio. Let's get into our interview. Eric, on my phone, I have the Duluth Harbor Cam. I'm alerted when ships are entering Duluth at Canal Park by the historic aerial bridge. And when visiting there in person, I still find it thrilling to watch ships like the Pollar, Tregrutha, and the Masabi Minor Enterport, Thousand Footers. My favorite is the James R. Barker because of its unique horn, the captain's salute to market's arrival. This is your wheelhouse, literally. What is the Lake Carriers Association? Give us an overview of what the association does, how long it's been around, and who the Lake Carriers Association represents. 
So the Lake Carriers Association is the oldest trade association in the United States. We were established in 1880 to represent the U.S. flag fleet here on the Great Lakes, which includes all of those thousand foot vessels. Our members are 46, excuse me, 46 vessels, and we have 13 member companies. Again, we represent only the U.S. flag fleet here on the Great Lakes, which is pretty much confined to the Great Lakes because of their size. So we're not transiting out the seaway. We're pretty much within uh, Lake Erie, Ontario, excuse me, Lake Erie, Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, and Lake Superior, moving all those critical cargoes. Give us an overview and um, maybe an idea of the evolution of shipping on the Great Lakes and what types of products are shipped on the Great Lakes and further, how many Americans are employed in jobs related to Great Lakes shipping operations and what types of jobs are they? So shipping on the Great Lakes has been around for a long time. Um, So if you look at the original first settlers here and traders, there was a lot of fur trade that was going on within the Great Lakes, which evolved into a lot of timber trade, which was getting all the timber out of the northern lakes, taking it down to the southern lakes to construct cities like Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland. Um, And then it has evolved over the years, and really it's those critical raw materials that are moving here on the Great Lakes. And what I mean by that is it's a very interdependent system. So everything that comes out of the mines in Minnesota, that come out of the mines in Michigan, all of that moves to the southern lakes, and those raw materials supply things like the steel mills, which employ hundreds of workers down here in the lower lakes. So a very interconnected system. Um, a lot of jobs are, are uh, at stake here. 148,000 jobs are tied to the Great Lakes industry here with shipping. Um, some of those jobs include everything from, if you tie it all the way back to those mines, so you've got those miners up in the, the Hibbing and the, the, the Iron Ore Range there in the Wasabi Range. Um, you've got the, some of the largest limestone deposits in the world located in Michigan. So all of those miners are, are tied to our ships being able to take their products after they're, they're uh, produced and move them down to the Southern Lakes for, fi- for uh, products to be turned into finished uh, materials, materials such as cars. So all of that iron ore that comes down is, is transferred into steel, which is then moved into cars. So you can see how everything is extremely tied together here. Um, and really the linchpin is the, the shipping on the lakes here that moves it. Um, so you've got everything from the sailors that are on the vessel. You've got the, the longshoremen working there and the uh, facilities, the ports, um, all of the steel mills. You've got uh, grain elevators. You, it, it's just a, it's an amazing system. Um, and literally it would be the third largest economy in the world behind the U.S., the rest of the U.S. and China. So that's how big of an impact the Great Lakes region and maritime shipping has here for national economic reasons. Hmm. Wow, impressive. Um, So if not by ship, how would these mining agricultural energy sector and, and manufacturing products get transported? So one of the things that's really unique about our vessels, back in the early 80s, um, late 70s, there was a transition to self-unloading vessels. So our vessels have um, large booms on them where they can actually, once they get the products on board, they take those products and they deliver them to a facility with no help whatsoever to offload. So they swing their boom over and 70,000 tons is dumped onto wherever that facility is. Um, It can be anywhere, but a lot of these facilities are no longer, they can't accept it via any other means because of our ships. Um, so they don't have rail capacity in some of these areas. Um, the trucks just cannot move the amount of cargo that we can move. So 70,000 tons in one load is the equivalent of 700 train cars or 2,800 trucks on your roads. 
Um, so it's really an efficient system and it's been set up that way. And so just imagine that you're working at one of these steel mills. One day you're, you're almost out of raw materials. The next morning you come in and there's 70,000 tons of iron ore pellets sitting on your dock. It, it's really a phenomenal system. Uh, the other thing is, is that lake shipping is, is very efficient. Um, so we can move 607, go 607 miles on one gallon of gas moving one ton of cargo. Hmm. And you compare that to a truck. The, the trucks just aren't as efficient. They're, uh, they're using about 20 horsepower to, use, to move one ton of uh, cargo, whereas our the vessels use 0.2 horsepower to move one ton of cargo. So environmentally efficient, keeps the trucks off your roads, um, reduces rail traffic. Um, and literally, if you look back at uh, some of the things that were done over the years, back in the 50s, they actually ran a uh, train ferry. So it was a, a large, it's called the Badger now. Uh, but they had several of these vessels that were moving uh, trains across Lake Michigan to avoid having to go through the switchyards there in Chicago because of the congestion. So the movement here on the lakes is extremely efficient and critical, uh, again, just to make sure we can continue to move cargo without impacting your roads, without impacting other places like that. And, and it's environmentally, it's the most efficient way of moving these large amounts of quantities of cargo. Hmm. Well, that gives us some idea of, of what a port looks like, but can you give us more detail? Can you describe a, a working port or a harbor for us, um, specifically as to what's taking place there, the numerous cargo terminals, offloading and onloading, inspections and repairs, and among all those other operations? So I guess let's start with uh, uh, Duluth, uh, being that we're talking about Minnesota here. If you look at Duluth, um, what you've got there is a, a lot of raw materials going through that port. Um, so you've got the iron ore, which is coming in by a train um, to the facility there, which goes in the large hoppers. And then those train cars are dumped upside down into chutes, which fill our vessels with the open cargo hatches. Um, you've also got grain elevators, which are moving grain from the, the prairies out there and bringing it into the uh, Duluth Superior Harbors. And those are also being loaded into the vessels there. So you've got people that are working on the facilities there to make sure that um, all those cargos can efficiently get on board. You know, one of the things uh, that we experience also is there's been a downtrend in coal, uh, which is expected, but we are still moving quite a bit of western coal, um, which is coming through the Duluth Superior Harbor there. Some places like the Powder River Basin, it's coming all the way from Montana, Wyoming, um, a very efficient burning coal, relatively speaking. Um, so we use that and, and deliver it to facilities for power generation here on the lower lakes. Um, the other things that's kind of evolved with the ports over the last, I'd say, decade is more containerized cargo. Um, so we really haven't seen a lot of container cargo. So what we move here and what we represent is bulk cargo, um, large quantities of, of raw materials again. But they're starting to move containers from overseas into the lakes now, which is uh, it, it's an interesting concept and it, and it seems to be taking off. Duluth has experienced some of that. We've got a lot of wind turbines coming in. Um, so those cargos are also project cargos, we call them. So uh, all sorts of all sorts of materials moving in and out of here. Um, and with the increase of these cargo containers, there's a possibility of bringing more and more cargo into the Great Lakes, which puts it further into the heartland, as opposed to bringing it into, say, Baltimore or Los Angeles. You still have to move it a long ways to get it into the heartland. Here on the Great Lakes, you get it to Duluth, you're halfway there. Interesting. Uh, Eric, what's the season for shipping on the Great Lakes? And then how does ice affect the shipping season? I mean, how many ice ice breakers are on the lakes to assist ships? 
what is the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Mackinac, and how important is it to icebreaking operations? So start start with, if you would with when the shipping season is on the Great Lakes, and then how it how it's affected by ice. So the unique thing about the Great Lakes St. Lawrence system, and it is a system, so you have to think of it almost like one big port. Um, once you're in, you're in. Once you're out, you're out. Um, but the bottom line is, is that it does have a confined season timeline. So as of January 15th, the locks in Sault Ste. Marie will close down. Once those close down, it shuts off access to Lake Superior. So at that point, um, between January 15th and March 25th, vessels go to what we call layup. And during that two-month period, our vessels will go and do all the repairs they needed to complete for the year within that two-month window. Um, so that is kind of your confined season. And, and really, that uh, that's where things get really critical and crucial because what we have to do is deliver as much cargo as we can within that nine to ten, nine and a half, ten months to make sure the facilities here have enough stockpiles to operate and keep people employed over the winter months. So it's, it's a really a vital time. Um, and what we call that period between, say, December 1st and January 15th, that's the big beginning of your uh, ice season. That's when we start to see ice accumulation. Right. Um, and that is an impediment to be able to move effectively and efficiently here on the Great Lakes. And if, it'll form quick. You know, we saw it this year um, down here in the lower lakes. It was an odd year where we didn't have a lot of ice, but we did have some in December, which shut down shipping here in the Detroit River. Um, which you may not think about it in Minnesota, but if you can't get through the Detroit River, you're not getting to Duluth. So that's how, again, those interdependent systems here on the lakes are. Um, going to the Mackinac, the Mackinac is the Coast Guard's only heavy icebreaker here on the Great Lakes. They do maintain six smaller ones, tugs, icebreaking tugs, which are 140 feet long. The Mackinac is 240 feet long, much larger, much more capable and heavier ice conditions. So she is vital to maintaining and being able to move 20% of our cargo that goes between December 15th and January January 15th. And then again, when the season opens between March 25th and sometimes all the way to the end of April, when we have ice conditions still up in the Northern Lakes. Mm-hmm. So being able to move those cargos effectively and efficiently is, is crucial, not only for, um, for us, but it's, there's also things called flood relief. So the Coast Guard is responsible for managing flood relief when ice jams occur on the rivers so down here we they're they're pretty predominant in a lot of the tributaries to the great lakes but one of the major areas is in the st Clair river down near detroit just north of detroit and when that backs up with ice jams it causes rapid rapid flooding and damages coastal communities and oftentimes the only ships that can handle that ice breaking because of the thickness of the ice and the amount of it is the heavy icebreaker maximum and if she's in a maintenance period or if she's broken down, it becomes very uh, difficult to move anything here on the lakes. How important would it be to get a second icebreaker, the size Vital. and strength of the Mackinac? Vital. Um, it's not only a resiliency issue. You're talking a massive amount of distance. So Duluth to Buffalo to Chicago, um, you're just talking a, a, a tremendous amount of distance to cover. And that vessel can only be in one place at one time. So the, having two of them is, is absolutely critical right now. Uh, we've had a lot of support being able to push this forward. Um, this is one of our advocacy efforts as a trade association is to make sure that we, again, it, it's, it's not only just an efficiency of the system issue, it's also the safety of our sailors. 
we've had holes punched in the side of our ships from ice when ice has slid over and, and damaged the vessel. Um, so it, it's a critical it's a critical need right now. And you know, you talk about infrastructure dollars that came out. Well, all that infrastructure is your concrete, your limestone, your iron ore. All of that stuff has to move here on the Great Lakes for those dollars to be worth anything. And if we can't move it efficiently and effectively here, especially during the winter months, again, that stockpiling period, then we're going to have a problem as a nation. Hmm. Eric, I've read that Lake Ontario rarely freezes over. Erie often is completely frozen over. How about the biggest and deepest of the Great Lakes, Superior? Does that ever freeze over completely? I have never seen it freeze over completely. I have seen it very bad. Um, so I was on Mackinac 2013-14 ice season there. And I don't know if you folks were up or had been up around the lake at all, but we had literally Arctic conditions. Mm-hmm. We had feet of ice across Lake Superior. A trip that normally takes 24 hours from Duluth to Whitefish Bay, which is your entrance into the St. Mary's River, took 11 days for the Mackinac to get three ships across Lake Superior. Wow. And during that period, we had damage to the vessels um, just because of the amount of ice that was out there. We came back across, it was literally beginning of May, and there was icebergs floating out in Lake Superior that had pulled off the shoreline that were 30 feet tall. Um, So it was a tremendous ice season. So people talk about, you know, we have some mild years, we have some cold years. I would say I've been breaking ice on the Great Lakes since 2000. We have more variability. And some of the winters are even worse than I've ever seen before. So you get some where they're not as bad, and then you get some that are just horrific. Um, and that 2013-2014 season, it was an incredible, incredible amount of ice. And it wasn't just in Lake Superior. It was across the board. We typically don't get a lot of ice down in Chicago. We were down there breaking ice with the Mackinac in Chicago because of the, the amount of ice that was there. Um, so it uh, – it, does, uh, it doesn't completely freeze over in Superior, but it can be extremely difficult. And every year in Whitefish Bay, we have conditions that are, are very difficult that require the heavy icebreaker to get up there. So interesting. Well, let's talk more about the Mackinac. You were a commander on that ship. Uh, what was your role as a commander? And uh, how many crew did you supervise? Uh, how long is the Mackinac out to sea on a typical assignment? So I was on um, Mackinac as the executive officer, so second in command. Um, I did a lot of the uh, personnel issues of 50, 50 personnel on board, um, very talented crew. Uh, but again, that 2013-2014 season really put us to the test because it is a multi-mission vessel. So it works aids to navigation as well. And we usually start that process in October. Well, we started that process of pulling the buoys out before the winter comes and they freeze up. And then you went right into ice season because of the amount of ice we had. So we were gone in October we didn't come back until February. And when we got back in in February, at that point, we were just doing maintenance to make all the repairs we could possibly do before we had to go back out um, and get the ships moving again before the locks opened. And that process starts usually uh, a week to two weeks before the locks open because you have to prep the area for the vessels. And again, that distance between ports is tremendous. So you have to you have to get out there early and work. So that was a difficult season. It was really tough on the crew, very talented, but we were literally gone almost from October until June, and that was when we put the buoys back in. So it was a nonstop race, um, very 
very challenging conditions and uh, it's 240 feet long and it's a very habitable ship, but still when you're gone for that amount of time and it's over the holidays. So I give the Coast Guard a lot of credit, right? Just like our sailors are out there moving cargo during the Christmas time and, you know, they're out there as well. And they're working, trying to make sure our ships can get through those ice conditions and, and continue to operate. Uh, but it, it makes for a long season sometimes. And how physically is ice broken? And what is the mission of the icebreakers? Is it ever to, say, free ships from ice or, or even for rescue operations? So the Coast Guard, first of all, let's start with how, how they break ice. There's a couple of different ways. The Mackinac uses brute force. She's a big ship uh, with 10,000 horsepower. So she also has what they call azipods. So these azipods are, I, I would equate it to like a giant Minkota. So they sit down below the ship and they can rotate 360 degrees. There's two of them um, on the stern there. And what they can do with that is they can actually use directional wash. So they can break ice by pushing, staying in place and actually pushing the pods opposed to each other Hmm. and pushing the ice out away from the channel. Um, And then they can also just use the sheer weight and size of that vessel to break through it. Um, Kind of think of it as a lever action. When you push the bow up, the buoyancy in the stern pushes the bow back down and that cracks the ice. The smaller 140-foot tugs have a unique capability to use their wake. Um, So they squat down, and they can throw a six-foot wake out to the side, and that can pick up the ice and and move it out of the way as well. Um, The difficulty with the 140s is they don't displace ice. So their size of the ship's smaller. Um, It won't push the ice out of the way necessarily. They'll break it, um, whereas the Mackinac has has a different design and square sides where she can actually push the ice and, and leave an open track. Um, that becomes a little bit more critical when you're trying to move barge traffic, um, because the barge will just, the ice will just slide up underneath the bow and and end up binding them up. Um, so that, uh, different ways of breaking ice. And I apologize. What was the second part of your question again? I was just curious about the actual, um, operations. Do, Do you ever have to free ships from ice or, or actually conduct rescue operations? So obviously the Coast Guard's priority is is rescue operations, and they do have to partake in that, unfortunately, sometimes. Um, most often would be things like uh, ice fishermen that may get stranded on an ice flow. Uh, typically they use their helicopters for that, but the Coast Guard does have the ability to, to uh, conduct ice rescue missions with their, with their Coast Guard cutters. They'll deploy people onto the ice with uh, sleds and things like that if they need to recover folks. Um, but primarily their job is to keep the navigation channels open. Um, and they do that with uh, various, you know, obviously various means, but the, uh, the icebreakers are, are there to keep the channels open. So they do what we call prevent, preventive ice breaking, which is making a track in the ice. Um, and when, when that holds, it's, it's pretty good. Um, but as you can imagine, as you get into the other sides of the season and that ice starts moving around, that's when it becomes even more dangerous. So they have to be out there opening up those channels. And then the vessels do get stuck. So the Coast Guard is, comes alongside, does the best they can to break them out. And they do, I mean, this is a challenging, it's a challenging operation for the Coast Guard. It's challenging for our, our mariners. Um, but they're, it's not like, uh, this is a contact sport, right? They're right up against them. They're, they're breaking ice. This isn't a, a cruise ship. This is out there, and it's hard work. It's loud. Um, and they're getting right up next to those ships, and they're trying to break, break them out to keep them moving. And they do get stuck. We've had vessels stuck for days, literally days where they could not get them moving. Um, so it uh, it's challenging. And the funny thing is, you know, I always tell people that you, you've probably heard of the Ever Given 
um, or one of the ever stucks. There was one that was stuck in the Suez Canal, and there was another one stuck in Baltimore Harbor. That makes world news. Yeah. That happens every year here on the Great Lakes, and nobody hears anything about it. Hmm. For our listeners, you're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm your host, Joe Moravchik. My co-host is Nate Leaf, and News Director Rich Larson is working the radio board. Our guest today is Eric Peace, Vice President of the Lake Carriers Association. We are discussing the Great Lakes shipping industry. Eric, in the past 15 years alone, I've read articles about the water levels being low on the Great Lakes and then the water levels being high. Explain how low water affects shipping and then how high water affects shipping, if you would. So it's kind of a a catch-all here because when you have high water, you can load deeper. Um, So we can move more cargo under high water. The problem with high water is that uh, it also causes issues for coastal communities. So these are 1,000-foot ships that draft 30 feet, um, 27 feet. And when they go by, they actually cause um, rise, rise and fall of the water. And what that does is it can impact coastal communities, docks, people's private facilities, those kinds of things. So we have to slow down. Um, so you can load more, but then you have to slow down. So it's kind of a, it's a good thing, but it's not, not a good thing. And then when it comes to the low water levels, for every foot of draft that we lose, we lose, excuse me, every inch of draft that we lose, we lose 270 tons of cargo. Um, so as those water levels go down, we have to load lighter. And when you load lighter, you can't move the 70,000 tons that you want to in that large 1,000-foot vessel. You may have to cut it down to 60,000 tons, mm-hmm. um, which, again, remember, that it's a confined season. So we only have a certain amount of time to get as much cargo as we can before the locks shut down and we can no longer move. So, again, it's kind of a – neither one's the greatest. But um, if you kind of find a middle, middle area, that's, that's kind of what we hope for. Explain draft, explain draft to our listeners. Yes, so draft is how much water the, the ship displaces. So it's how deep it sits in the water. Okay. There's markings on the side of the ship that you'll see where they load to those markings, um, and that allows them how much further. So basically how much water is underneath the ship as it goes through these um, narrow channels and things where it's shallow. So, you yeah, you mentioned um, – uh, the river systems. And of course we know that uh, shipping operations take place on all the great lakes, superior Michigan here on Erie and Ontario. But I'm curious about um, the river system and the locks connecting these lakes. What are the primary river systems um, that, that connect the lakes for shipping? And can you describe what takes place in a lock? Yes. So, what you have here, again, this is a system, so you have to take not only the Great Lakes into account, but the St. Lawrence Seaway. So the St. Lawrence Seaway, there's a series of locks up um, on the St. Lawrence itself. And then as you go down through Lake Ontario, you have to go around, essentially around Niagara Falls, right? So you have a system of locks in the Welland Canal, it's called. Um, and then as you go in through Lake Erie, you're, there's no reason to have any locks, but you're still having transit through the Detroit-St. Clair River. And then you go up into the Sault Ste. Marie, um, St. Mary's River, and that's where your final set of locks is before you're in the upper lakes. The Sioux, it's in Sault Ste. Marie, it's a 21-foot drop. Um, so that lock is is uh, is essential, and it's only there's only one lock up there that can handle most of our ships because of its size. There's two operational locks. There's the MacArthur lock, which is a smaller lock, 
and then the Pollock, which is able to accommodate the thousand foot ships. So I believe that if I'm correct, the Pollock's 110 feet wide. Our vessels are 105 feet wide. So talk about trying to slip into a shoebox, right? It's it's a pretty tight fit, um, but it it does its job. The problem is is it's aging. Um, built in 1969, it's uh, it's becoming uh, increasingly it fails has problems increasingly. So we need to get it we need to get a new one put in there. And again, it goes back to it is literally the single point of failure for the entire Great Lakes. If that Pollock fails. There was a DHS study, the Department of Homeland Security, that estimates 11 million people would be unemployed in the United States if a six-month outage of that Pollock and $1.1 trillion economic impact, which would cause a recession worse than we saw in 2007, 2008. That is how vital that Pollock is to this entire system. If you look back at uh, the system again as a whole, you take into history that Pollock during World War II they actually had 10,000 troops stationed up there to protect it because it was so vital to our national economic security and our national security to be able to move that iron ore to build, <clears throat> to build the ships. Excuse me. So, again, that lock is critical. It's, it's using gravity. It's taking the feed from the upper upper pool from Lake Superior, dropping it down 21 feet through that gravity-fed valves, and then empties the same way when it comes in, fills it up as the vessel goes in, and it raises up 21 feet into the upper lake there. Were uh, were those issues uh, addressed at all in any of the recent legislation uh, passed by Congress, like last fall, some some major pieces of stimulus um, to to upgrade those locks? And and what what actually is involved in building a new lock if that were to be required? And who builds it? So. $3.2 billion, to be exact, is what it's going to require. Um, the uh, new lock is under construction at this point. Hmm. So there was two older locks that were to the uh, east of the Po that were decommissioned. Those are being um, cleaned out, essentially, and they're going to pour a new lock in there that will be similar to the Po lock. Um, so they are looking at that the money has been put forth. The problem is the project started out as a $1.2 billion project. And then as inflation, market issues, you name it, it now went to $3.2 billion. Um, but progress is being made, and we are looking to get some additional funding. There was money that came in with the stimulus, um, but with that increase in cost, it is it is pushing some, some things higher. But the core knows that, uh, and so does the nation, and congressional folks know this as well, how vital that is to, to the national economic security. So it, it will get done. Um, it is going to cost some money, but the bottom line is it's it's that crucial to our, to our nation to have that lock operate. And is dredging required to maintain the rivers and locks for shipping efficiency and safety? Dredging is essential, um, especially you mentioned the low water levels. But even when we have normal water levels, we still have to have dredging. Um, and it's required across the system. It's not just in the rivers. It's in the harbors. It, it's it's literally everywhere. Um, and again, that is a, a major cost um, driver. So we as an association have lobbied for increased funding here for the Great Lakes. Um, so there's a thing called the Harbor Maintenance Trust Fund, which is managed by uh, the Treasury Department, which is a tax on, on our cargo. So it's an ad valorem tax on the amount of um, the quantity of cargo that you're carrying is then dumped into that trust fund. The trust fund is then supposed to be paid out in the form of dredging dollars for the systems. 
Um, you can imagine that we're not shipping Nike shoes. So our, we're not paying as high a tax necessarily, but we still require, you know, that vital, we still require those dredging dollars. So um, thanks to a, our folks in Congress, we were able to get some help there. And uh, we've now allocated 13% of the annual allocation of that trust fund goes to the Great Lakes here and the Army Corps for dredging. Hmm. I used to live and work for the better part of two decades on Lake Michigan in a city on Lake Michigan. I would see the the buoys out in the harbor, out on the lake. I imagine those are navigational aids. Who tends to the buoys? Who sets them? Who tends them? Who repairs them? Is that part of your role as well? That's the Coast Guard's job. Okay. Um, and, and so they do have three buoy tenders. Well, actually, they have the Mackinac has a buoy tending capability. There's two 225-foot uh, buoy tenders, one in Duluth. The uh, It's no longer the Alder, um, but they have the spar up there now. And then there's another 225-foot buoy tender down in Port Huron, Michigan. And then there's also two of those 140-foot icebreakers have a barge that they push around and can work aids to navigation as well. It's a huge undertaking because you're talking 1,200 aids to navigation here in the system. Hmm. And the problem, again, is they have to go out when winter comes, and then they have to go back in once winter's over. So it's a lot of lifting and putting taking and putting back in um, a lot of aids to navigation. So it's a, it's a challenging environment for the Coast Guard, but they do an excellent job of it. Eric, what is the Jones Act? Um, what are the benefits of it economically and for national security? So the Jones Act was actually, uh, it's called the Merchant Mar- Marine Act of 1920. Um, it's been dubbed the Jones Act, but the, uh, the bottom line is it's America's cabotage law. Um, and cabotage laws are meant for U.S. flag shipping to operate between U.S. ports. So in order for a U.S. for a shipment from a U.S. port to another U.S. port, it has to be a U.S.-owned vessel, U.S. flagged with U.S. mariners on board, Americans. So you can't have a Chinese boat coming in and delivering from Duluth to Detroit. That would be against the Jones Act. That's exactly why it's critical to our national economic security. And don't forget, you have the Mississippi River, which is right out your back door. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of tug and barge operations moving up there. Those are all U.S. flagged as well because they're moving between U.S. ports. Um, it's also critical because 650,000 maritime jobs depend on the Jones Act here in the United States. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about this as we get further along, but it's critical that we have those jobs and those mariners because don't forget that when we go to war, those mariners, those civilian mariners are operating your supply ships that are going overseas to wherever they may need to go. All right. Um, so it's a pretty critical to have those merchant mariners in the United States. And it's also dependent that, um, you know, you talk about safety and security. I would much rather have a highly regulated U.S. flagged vessel operating on the Great Lakes of the Mississippi River than I would have a lower regulated foreign flagged vessel with um, not a, that don't have near the expertise that our mariners do. And we have the best mariners in the world. You can just see when they operate up on the Detroit River, the St. Clair River, uh, the St. Mary's River, 1,000-foot vessels or aircraft carrier size, and they're moving those things with skill. Hmm. 
You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm one of your hosts for today, Nate Leaf. Joe Moravchik and Rich Larson are with me in the studio. Our guest today joining us on Zoom is Eric Peace, Vice President of the Lake Carriers Association, and we are discussing the Great Lakes shipping industry. Um, Eric, I was wondering if you could explain ballasting for us. How does weather on the lakes affect when a ship does it um, or the loading and unloading of ships? So our vessels ballast every time they unload or load. Um, And again, the reason being is because stability. Uh, It's a safety issue. So if you get weight too high up and you're trying to operate a vessel without ballast in the the bottom of it or weight, um, then you become unstable and it can tip over. So as they're offloading cargo and they're reducing the amount of um, cargo weight on board their vessel, they're taking on water. Um, and they're doing that strategically, whether it's fore or aft, so that they stay stable and that they uh, doesn't become unstable. So ballasting is a critical function here for all of our vessels. And you can imagine a thousand foot vessel, we're moving a lot of water in and out just to try and maintain that stability of the vessel as they're offloading that 70,000 tons. Um, and again, that, that happens in eight hours. So you can imagine we're having to ballast pretty rapidly as we're moving that cargo off with the weight. Eric, the primary objective of the Lake Carriers Association is to promote the common interests of U.S. flag vessel operators on the Great Lakes by creating recognition and change in legislative and regulatory matters. What are some of the impediments to more efficient operations? Or what significant investments would make more efficient operations for the Lake Carriers? So great question. Um, I would like to back up one minute if possible, just to kind of also describe what the Lake Carriers does and how we are established. Sure. Um, one of the important pieces of, you know, back in the 1800s, there was a lot of shipwrecks here on the Great Lakes. Um, and one of the main purposes for the Lake Carriers Association was to get all of the shipping companies on board with safety and security um, and to make sure that we were all operating under the, under the same kind of um, good ideas. Right. Yeah. So, the our members are competitors so we don't talk business but what we do talk is safety and security which is is vital um so if you one perfect example would be covid so when the covid outbreak outbreak happened uh, back in 2020 we um we were actually essential workers right because we're having to move those cargoes but the problem was we couldn't get our mariners vaccinated um, they had to be on the ship or when they were off the ship, they were in another state where they couldn't get a vaccine. Um, so it became a kind of a, a challenge for us, but this is exactly why we exist as an as association. We ended up getting the Sioux Locks and the Army Corps of Engineers and the local health department in Chippewa County up in Sault Ste. Marie to vaccinate our crew members as they went through the Sioux Locks, hmm. which was a tremendous feat. Um, but that's the kind of things that we do here um, not only advocating for our industry, but also helping make sure that our industry stays safe and efficient and effective. Um, if you may not know this, but we are, the Lake Carriers Association established the first ever traffic separation scheme in the world. Um, what that means is basically it's a, there's lines on the highway. Yeah. So each lake has lines on it, which are recommended courses from Lake Carriers Association to, to avoid collisions. So a vessel going east-west in Lake Superior will follow a, a certain line that's been laid down, and the one going west-east is going to follow a different line, which will keep them separated. Um, so you reduce the need for collisions. So 
back to your question though, legislative and regulatory and what we can do to move things forward. We've talked about a couple of these, but let's start with the icebreaker again. Uh, it, it, that's been a difficult road. Um, the Coast Guard didn't, I would say, didn't place a lot of emphasis on domestic icebreaking here on the Great Lakes for a long time. And part of that problem stemmed from um, not very transparent performance metrics and how they did the job. So what it came down to was they only measured four waterways here on the Great Lakes as to their success or failure with icebreaking. So the St. Mary's River was one of them, the Straits of Mackinac, the Detroit-St. Clair River, and the fourth one's called Peely Passage in Western Lake Erie. If you were stuck anywhere else in the Great Lakes, say Green Bay, or you were stuck and you couldn't get out of Duluth, it didn't count against their performance metrics. So there was a problem there. And remember I talked about interconnectivity of the system. If you can't get to the St. Mary's River, then the Coast Guard was getting success, achieving success. Um, so it was kind of a crazy system. I, I think, you know, originally it was set up as a prioritization, which we don't argue with. I mean, those are areas that need prioritized prioritize for ice breaking. But you have to measure the system as a whole. If you can't get from Duluth to the to Whitefish Bay, then it does you no good. Um, so we've been working on some of that. That was part of the struggle with the Coast Guard at first, because when we go to Congress and say we need another heavy icebreaker, the Coast Guard would say they were 95% successful. Well, 95% success only counted in four waterways, and it didn't count the open lake. It didn't count the bays or the harbors. Um, so we worked through some of that with the National Defense Authorization Act of last year uh, that was signed into law in December. And there's some new requirements there, including that the Government Accountability Office is going to take a look at these measurements and, and figure out what's transparent and what's correct. Um, and we're going to work closely with the Coast Guard to, to give them our data as well as to when we're stuck and when we can't operate so that we can get better metrics all together so that we have a better understanding of how things are moving or not moving. With that said, that uh, the Coast Guard has really come a long way. Um, so as of this year, they put in their budget request. They went through the Department of Homeland Security. They went into the president's budget. They asked for $55 million for a new heavy icebreaker here on the Great Lakes. So we're obviously very um, interested in making sure that gets done. Uh, it, it's going to be a tight budget year because, uh, you know, some changes in the administration. But we hope that that $55 million and the power of the Great Lakes congressional delegation is able to push it over the hump and gets the, the Coast Guard what they need to start building this vessel. Um, it's critical that it's a need, it's a, it's a now need, but unfortunately, uh, the Coast Guard says it's going to take them 10 years to build it. So, uh, which is, you know, we put a man on the moon faster than we can build an icebreaker. I, I don't understand it, but hmm. we'll, uh, we'll keep advocating for that and making sure that the Coast Guard gets the resources they need to do the job right here. Sioux locks we talked about, um, obviously, you know, that's important. Uh, we've already discussed it. Uh, the other issue being the dredging issue. Um, those are big ones, and then protection of that Jones Act. You mentioned a few moments, moments ago lanes of traffic on the lakes. When ships have to deviate from paths due to heavy weather, who manages that? Is it the individual captains on the individual vessels, or is there a traffic control system? There is two traffic control systems within the lakes, and then there's a third one out in the St. Lawrence Seaway. Um, the two are the, the St. Mary's River and the St. Clair River. Detroit-St. Clair River is operated by Sarnia Traffic out of uh, Ontario. Those are the only places where traffic's actually managed. Um, so if you're out in, say, Lake Superior and you need to hug the northern shore, 
those are managed by the, each captain. Each captain will decide where they're going to go and how they're going to get there safely. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, those lines help them mitigate that too. So we do have uh, those track lines are laid out on the lakes, which do take into account heavy weather patterns. So there's areas where there's um, the lines are actually in the heavy weather areas where you know predominant winds come from west to east. So we focused a lot on the American side of the equation, but we share a huge border there with with Canada. Um, to what extent are are Canadian operations um, relevant, and and how much cooperation is there with Canada for for shipping on the Great Lakes? So again, it's competition. Um, I would tell you that the cross border trade is dominated by the Canadians. So they're doing a lot of shipping from Canada to the U S um, very little by us. Uh, there's a few cargoes that will run up uh, here and there to Canadians, but it's typically the Canadians are running it from Canada to the U S um, they do get a couple of advantages. They, uh, their vessels don't, they, you know, they built their vessels over in uh, Croatia, I believe, and some, some in China, um, they've got some other issues there as well where they, they don't have to have the same crewing that we do. So they get an economic advantage as far as that goes as well. So that's what probably dominates some of that cross-border trade. And, um, so cooperation, we do cooperate, but it's, uh, again, it's, there's, you got to bring something to the table. And one of the things that frustrates us with the Canadian portion of it is, the U.S. Coast Guard maintains nine icebreakers here on the Great Lakes. The Canadians have two. And so they call it a cooperative agreement, yet <laughs> you can do the numbers yourself, and it uh, it doesn't work that way. Um, so there's a, there's a need for continued cooperation. I agree wholeheartedly, but I do think that, uh, you know, the U.S. fleet here is, is much more uh, subject to, to regulation than the Canadian fleet, and that gives them kind of an advantage. Okay. And the lock system, are there considerations there? Because it's one set of locks, right? It's not Canadian locks and American locks. or No, the Canadians get to use that lock for free. We get to build it and pay for it. They get to use it for free. That simple. <laughs> that simple. Eric, you are also chairman of the board for a Cleveland nonprofit that promotes aviation and maritime trades for inner city youth. Uh, Many industries are having difficulty filling positions. How about the shipping industry? Do you have enough mariners? No, this is a, um, this isn't just a Great Lakes issue. This is a global issue, but it's, it's impacting uh, the maritime industry significantly. Um, I think the latest report I saw was we were short 1900 mariners in the United States. Um, so it's a significant shortfall. The, the problem is, I don't know if it's generational or, or what, um, but it, it is difficult to get new mariners into the industry. So what we're really trying to do with that nonprofit is expose some of these places that we necessarily haven't been exposed to what shipping is here on the Great Lakes and give these young men and women an idea that there's potential here. And one of the best things about the maritime industry is you can start at the bottom and work your way all the way to the top. Um, so it's not, uh, there's a lot of advantages for some of these, especially these inner city youth that may never have been exposed to it. They may see a ship come and go and not know what it's doing or what job opportunities are on board that vessel. We're trying to really expose them to that. And, you know, there's a lot of different jobs. There's engineering jobs on the boat. There's obviously driving the pilot house, um, working the deck, cooking. Um, those people have to eat. So you can, you know, you have culinary specialists on board mm-hmm. as well. So there's a lot of different opportunities um, to get people involved in the maritime industry. And, you know, 
one of the things is too that we're really trying to work with these young folks is you know the shipping industry here on the great lakes we live here you know we don't just uh we don't just ship and then go to florida uh, you know, we're shipping here. We live here. You know, we raise our families here. We protect these lakes like they're our own because they are. Um, and it's vital that we have young men and women take that under their wing and, and also expose them to this is an important aspect of what the lakes are here for. Um, it is a transportation route, always has been. Um, so we want to continue to expose those young folks to all the things that happen here on the Great Lakes, and all the potential, all the potential that they can achieve. Um, but we do as an industry, we've got to find ways to get new folks into it. it it's a, it's a tough time right now. And again, it's, it's national, it's global. Um, there's a struggle across, across the board to get mariners. Hmm. I want to return to icebreaking for just a minute. Eric, you have great experience in icebreaking leadership. In fact, you've written papers advocating for polar icebreaking improvement and capability. Leave the Great Lakes for a moment. Explain the importance of polar ice breaking so you know it's it's funny i'll do a little side story I, i'm kind of uh i don't want to be monotone the uh when i was at coast guard headquarters they uh, sent me down to antarctica for a month um and i was down there you know, basically escorting vips around like the uh joint chiefs of staff and other folks but what a cool operation you go down there the national science foundation runs it but the only way they can get supplies in is through a military sea lift command ship. And the only way that ship gets in is through a polar icebreaker, a heavy one. Um, so it's pretty incredible to see that operation take place. But they break ice across the ice shelf into the Ross Sea going into McMurdo. And they deliver that critical cargo down there to McMurdo once a year. Because that's the only time you can get in there. But I was, uh, I retired after I retired from the Coast Guard. I went back to Montana where I'm from. Um, and, uh, I was working at a job where basically I was, we were selling junk mail and I'm thinking to myself, you know, we were talking about how much crinkle goes into a box and how there was like six people sitting in a room discussing this. And I'm thinking to myself, I was just down in Antarctica a month or a year ago. I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> so that's when I came back here to the, to the Great Lakes and my, my boss, who's a good friend of mine as well. We knew each other. He was in the Coast Guard as well. Um, it just worked out well, but that polar operations is becoming more and more problematic um, in, in, when it comes down to the Arctic. So the Arctic is a, uh, an issue of sovereignty. And it's also an issue of defense. Um, it's also an issue of cargo movements. So things are opening up in the Arctic. Um, there's going to be a need for more ice breaking, and the ice breaking operations won't always necessarily be defense-based. Uh, it may be moving cargo. And transporting, and that's why I say that we use what we do here on the Great Lakes, which is escort cargo vessels, is the, what they're going to be doing up in the Arctic. So this is where they learn, the young folks that come into the Great Lakes, and they learn from the Coast Guard how to drive ships in the ice. Then before they get into the really unforgiving stuff up in the Arctic, they know what they're doing, and they can have that exposure to, to ice breaking. It also creates a workforce management structure. Um, so that they can feed each other and we get exposure from both the poles into the Great Lakes and the Great Lakes into the poles. But again, the Coast Guard is struggling with some uh, acquisition, but they do have money to build new polar icebreakers. The uh, original heavy polar icebreaker is uh, from the 1970s, and it's having tremendous problems. Mm -hmm. There was two of them. Um, one of them had catastrophic failure. So now that one's spare parts for the only one that still survives. But it's it's literally limping on, limping along. Um, so they need a new icebreaker for the Coast Guard. Several of them actually, 
because they had that Antarctic mission, and then they also need that, that exposure up in the Arctic and protect our sovereignty up there. We'd like to give our guests the final word on our program. What are some concluding thoughts? Eric, what did we miss, or what would you like to add to our discussion about the Lake Carriers Association and the importance of Great Lakes shipping? I think we covered pretty much all of it. I think it's, uh, you know, we have a cult following with our ships. We get a lot of folks, they call them boat nerds. Um, I'd like to see more boat nerds. It, it is a phenomenal industry. Um, again, it's critical to our national economic security. You know, it's funny. Uh, I talked to friends back in Montana, and they don't understand that they don't have cars without what we do here on the Great Lakes. Um, it's that important of what transpires here. I, I just love our industry, and I, I love the sailors that are out there doing the work. I'd like to see them get some help with some more sailors. Um, but I really think that, uh, you know, what we do here on the Great Lakes regionally impacts nationally, which impacts globally. Um, and again, like I said, third largest economy in the world behind the U.S. and China. So that's how important everything that happens here on the Great Lakes. And I'd really like to thank uh, Senator Klobuchar and uh, Congressman uh, Stauber for their help. They've helped us move quite a few things forward. Um, so really, Minnesota issue, yes. Wisconsin issue, yes. Uh, all those eight Great Lakes states, it, this is important to them. Um, and the more we get exposure of what the lakes are about and the economic shipping here, it, it's critical. And we've really had a lot of help from the congressional district, you know, the congressional delegation here on the lakes on moving a lot of these these needles as far as exposure to the, letting the rest of Congress know how important we are here. So just continuing to expose people to it's critical. So I appreciate you having me on to be able to talk about what I love to do so much. Um, and I also appreciate your, your pushing this out to expose more folks about what's important. And Minneapolis, not that far from Duluth, right? Yeah, not far at all. Maybe two and a half hour drive, if that, right? I encourage all your listeners to get out there and see some of these ships going through that Duluth aerial lift bridge. It's a pretty amazing sight. We make a point of making a trip to Canal Park every summer. And it's to see those ships we... We plan it around those ship schedules. I need to see the Barker come in once a year. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, keep, in, keep in touch. I'll let you know what her schedule is. Eric, where can our listeners find out more online about the Lake Carriers Association? So you can find us at lcaships.com, which is our website. There's position papers on there. There's cargo data for how much cargo we move annually. Um, there's press releases. Um, one of the things that uh, I failed to mention was how much of an investment our companies make back into the region. So we talked a little bit about um, what we do when we go to get our facility to work on our vessels during that two-month downtime. Last year, we invested $126 million into Great Lakes states in, in putting work back into our ships. So it's a pretty cool system there. Um, and it's also, you know, we just built a new ship. So you, you're talking about the James R. Barker. Well, we just built the Mark W. Barker. That Mark W. Barker is the first new self-unloading vessel self-propelled here on the Great Lakes in 35 years. So it shows that, that we definitely have an industry that's it's still running strong. Um, and it's pretty neat to think about the same iron ore that that thing's delivering is built it. It's the same steel. That's great. Well, this has been another great, interesting conversation. But this is where we have to end our program today. Eric Peace, thank you for being a part of public policy this week. Eric, I too would like to thank you for being part of our program today and sharing your knowledge and experience. 
The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 to 11. And if you don't catch the program live, you can pull up the podcast of each program on the KYMN website or on any of your favorite podcast services. Just look for our Public Policy This Week logo. Be sure to join us for next Friday's edition of Public Policy This Week. Have an outstanding Friday and a great weekend, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.